Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Leos Carax's Annette and I'm happy to be joined by my friend Ben Lubin to talk about this one. Ben, may we start? I, I, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this should, this should be a fun one to get into. Like, I, I, I like Karax a lot um, and he's, he's just one of those filmmakers who... Every time he comes out with a movie, you know it is going to be so fully itself that love it or hate it, what like whatever the premise is, whatever the genre is, it's just it's always an event. So, yeah, I and I and I'm happy, I'm looking forward to hearing Ben talk, give a little more context for uh, Karak's career because I have a feeling a lot of uh, the people that might listen to this podcast might not know much more about him than Holy Motors, which is the only one of his movies I'd watch before this. But uh, I think this is going to end up being like easily his most widely seen movie in America because he's a French director and this is his uh, first English language film and it has a very recognizable American star in it in Adam Driver. Uh, it. It, the movie, I, I happen to think this would be a good one to do with Ben because the movie was, uh, it's, it's largely a sung through musical that is composed and the story conceived of by uh, the band Sparks, who were the subject of Edgar Wright's documentary that was released in June. Sparks is uh, comprised of the brothers Russell and Ron Mile. And I saw that movie with Ben when I was in Los Angeles. So I thought, oh, even though I didn't do a podcast on that one, there'd be some synergy here if we did a podcast about the movie that they were making. And sure enough, there was a preview for it when we saw the Sparks Brothers documentary. And I, I don't think even I don't even think you knew neither of us knew at the time, Ben, that like they actually like had this big of a role in this movie. And then when we actually when you actually start watching it, that they're even more present than uh, you realize. So. Uh, or than than I think we were expecting. So um, it was a lot of interesting jumping off points for this movie beyond the fact that it's kind of bonkers in its own right, like a lot of uh, Leo's Carax's other movies. But as I said before, it's largely a sung through musical. And just to give you the, an initial gist of it, it's uh, the story of a comedian. Uh, I say that with some heavy air quotes played by Adam Driver. His character's name is Henry McHenry. And uh his wife, who's an opera singer named Anne Desfernu, I think might be how her name's pronounced. She's played by Marion Cotillard. They have a very high-profile relationship because in this world they're uh, very big celebrities, and we follow the arc of their relationship and the early life of their child, who is the title character Annette, also largely referred to as Baby Annette. And I'm not gonna like try and do any other kind of synopsis of the movie like I otherwise would, uh, but I'll just say like. Uh, I'm curious, Ben, because uh, I know you said it'd be a fun one to get into, but I'm also like, I think you kind of put it well when you said like, you can't really uh, put these movies in a box and they're very much their own. They're very much very apparently or their own thing when I watch them. So one of the first questions I planned to ask you before we started talking about it was, and I, I know that it's a dumb question, but I'm wondering like, were you surprised by this movie kind of like once it became apparent to you what it was? Because I mean, I don't have as many reference points for Leo's Carex, but like I, I think based on like the synopsis and like kind of what I had heard about the movie when it got announced, I assumed it was going to be like, like a musical version of Marriage Story. Like that was like the that was like the vibe I got when I heard it was like about this couple that was in entertainment and but it was like kind of a musical. I assumed it was going to be like kind of like dark in some ways, and that wasn't even the a fourth of it. And I. Or, I, I don't even know how else to put it, but I, I was just like what really thrown off and I somehow ended up to me being like both weirder and not as weird as Holy Motors at the same time was the way I put it. So I'm wondering, were you, were you just like, oh, OK, like, yeah, I just got to see uh, he's doing his own thing here. And I'm not surprised about any of this because this is just about what I would expect from him. I mean, it was definitely closer to that. Um, yeah. 
like a musical like I, I i don't know what i expected annette to be and i honestly kind of avoided a lot of kind of coverage of what the movie was going to be i mean i like i didn't need to be sold on it so i don't I even think that trailer really told us anything either yeah. that we watched which is like, um, which i appreciate but but i can i can say for sure something as grounded as a musical version of marriage story is not something i would have expected from Karox. um well after i saw holy motors i was like all right there's gonna be yeah. some weirder stuff in it than that and then all these like stories start coming out, and of course the only thing that gets a headline is that he, Adam Driver singing into Marion Cotillard's genitals. And yes. I'm like, okay, well, sure, that's uh, that's kind of makes sense after seeing Holy Motors, but somehow that's like the least weird part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, actually, again, the the thing about moments like that and so many other moments in the movie is that absurd and abstract and bonkers and whatever you want to call them as they are. There is something very real and human filtered through the particular dream logic of, of Karox's uh, style. Like, ultimately, if you want to talk about what the movie is quote-unquote about, it has a lot more to do with... It, it, it does have a lot to do with human relationships and people who are just deeply bad for each other and who are trying... And this this is the part to me that is the key of the movie. Unable to really view their children as people because they're so concerned with using them as a way to somehow either fix a relationship or to be be some sort of extension of themselves mm-hmm. and honestly it's funny like as much coverage as it got for like being this absurd surreal touch one of the most grounded elements of the movie to me was the the fact that uh baby annette was a mannequin like it's just something that makes so much like almost like literal symbolic sense. Yeah, well, yeah, hearing you put it in that way, and like I, I, well, I was gonna obviously ask you what you make of the mannequin because that's obviously gotten like a lot of the headlines and it's been the object of a lot of the stories about the movie. And it's funny that you kind of went there with respect to like how people see their kids because like out of all the stuff I read about this movie, like the one line that uh, kind of stuck with me was I, I read A.O. Scott's review in the New York Times. And he said, this is less a love story than a monster movie about a man incapable of grasping the full reality of other people, including his yeah. own wife and child. And 100%. That, that that like struck a chord with me more than like anything else I read about it. And so it's kind of and to hear you kind of explain about how like people are using their kids more so than just like actually like seeing them as like their own child and just being a parent like a normal person. That that helps really crystallize for me the point the point of the mannequin. So I I, I appreciate you like making that point because I was still kind of searching for what the mannequin meant. And yeah. uh, for anyone that didn't already watch the movie, like they probably no no idea what we're talking about. And I don't know if I expect anyone to listen to this or not. But like there's literally this baby Annette that I reference when I open the podcast for the vast vast majority of this movie is literally played by a wooden mannequin. Yeah. No. And I. Something I, I also kind of felt about the movie, and this is kind of, again, connected to the humanity at the core of the surreality. I love Henry as a character because he just very clearly struck a chord with me, just in terms of just people in my life who feel this element of just self-loathing, that they just, they really do not, there there, there is some core of pain and some core of self-loathing that on some level has warped them and that they make other people's problem. He keeps talking about a dark abyss throughout much of the movie. Yeah. And I'm going to try not to get into too much specific detail about the people in my life who this is making me think of because they kind of deserve their own privacy in this. Of course. But Henry felt like weirdly enough, maybe the most grounded and 
like I don't want to say the word relatable, but understandable character in any Karak's movie I've seen. And that may kind of be what you were getting at before with how this movie felt both beyond what you expected to be and also kind of much less strange than you expected to be based on Holy Motors. Because it weirdly as operatic and dreamlike and surreal and baffling as it is at times, it is very much a character study and is a character study of someone who has been trapped by their own pain. And it, it, it's funny, uh, you, you talked about how Henry was very much like an air quotes comedian. <laughs> the first thing I jumped to from the second we saw his kind of first routine was like Andy Kaufman mm-hmm. and kind of the Kaufman-esque like anti-comedy. Um, sure. And I actually think it, it's funny, like as, as funny as it is that like the, the buzziest celebrity couple in the world of this film were a stand-up comic and an opera star. <laughs> I actually, I, I kind of bought the idea of of kind of a more transgressive, provocative version of an Andy Kaufman being the type of figure who could kind of have this cult of celebrity around them, but who could also very easily kind of lose that cult when people kind of got past the uh, exciting shock value of it all. But yeah, I uh, kind of rambling around kind of what I originally wanted to get to when talking about the movie because one thing I really, really loved about it, yeah. and this is something that I think is true about every Karak's movie. Um, it, in fact, it is one of the few things that is true about every Karak's movie. There is no attempt to hide the fact that this is a film. There is no attempt to uh, embrace kind of real, like actualism or verisimilitude or to kind of hide the fact that what we are watching is a film is an illusion is the word i would use in this case a dream is that how is that is the is the opening scene part of that absolutely um and i will say that it like one of the reasons why i love that opening so much is it felt like a statement of purpose so again for for context for people who haven't seen the movie um and this is kind of the the joke that josh made at the beginning the movie opens with the Sparks Brothers and all of the actors from the film in a procession, basically singing, we are about to start. Like the song is called, we are about to start. And it's basically them kind of repeating the line. Like that, that's, that's what it is. Like, we're we about to start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like just over and over again. <laughs> and it, the thing it kind of specifically made me think of is the opening title is the opening title card from Jean Cocteau's beauty and the beast, which is, like one of the movies that is basically tied for my favorite movie of all time. And the title card of that movie, it's 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 not a silent movie, it just opens with the title card, is basically kind of Cocteau's message to the viewer about this is a film, this is a dream, embrace, like enter this film through the mind of a child. This is how I want you to view the film. And it's almost kind of him basically drawing the line between the boundary of you outside the theater and the type of like headspace he wants you to be in as you're entering the film. And again, if you do watch that film that way, it is one of the most wondrous and special and amazing movies of all time. And for me, kind of the opening sequence to Annette served a very similar purpose. Uh, it was a moment of, okay, you are here now, uh, come with us on this journey and know that you are leaving the world outside behind. And 
we saw a lot of moments where Karox is very clear about the constructed, dreamlike, fake version of the film we're watching. Like the element that I absolutely adored in this because it's something that is like very rarely done because it's something that in the year 2021 is so obviously fake is the use of rear projection which is a technique that has roots in kind of silent and golden age filmmaking um that can be used for like really beautiful dreamlike effect but has fallen out of fashion because it is something that is very obviously fake what's an example what's an example of that within an app so kind of the the obvious example is the shipwreck sequence um where basically i mean what rear projection is is it's when the backdrop is actually uh projected behind the actors oh yeah 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 um and so in basically in in the shipwreck sequence there is kind of this set of the ship and like the water and there there, there is kind of a set that these actors are on but the actual like roaring sea storm behind them is a backdrop that has been projected behind the actors. Mm-hmm. And the actual effect of that is something very surreal and almost kind of uncanny. Well, and again, he's, he's not letting you forgetting that you're watching a movie, like you said. Yeah. Um, which to me just adds to the very dreamlike quality of the film. And dreamlike is a word that you could use to describe all of his films, I would say. But it is funny, like, that he achieves that effect for you while at the same time you're acknowledging it can be that dreamlike to that extent. But in some ways you felt grounded as you ever have been in one of his movies because of Henry as a character. Absolutely. I I think it's a little – I think that's kind of – I mean, it's kind of funny that he's able to pull that off, those two things off at the same time. You know, it it is and it isn't because I think when we talk about kind of dream logic and film and art – like there tends to be it tends to be used as a cultural shorthand for just surreal and weird and bizarre and magical. And that's not really what dreams are. Dreams are those things, but there is also truth in dreams. Um, I mean, if you want to get like psychoanalytical about how dreams are kind of revealing things about the self that are kind of existing in the subconscious and kind of thing like memories and internal desires and drives merging together, whatever you want to, I am not a psychoanalyst, but I think even outside of kind of the literal kind of psychoanalytic meaning of dreams, if you look at kind of the way we've perceived dreams and viewed dreams, just going back thousands of years, there is something about dreams that we view as revealing some sort of truth, whether it's about ourselves, whether it's about the world, whether it's just something we can't perceive. There is meaning to dream logic beyond just things that are surreal and bizarre and magical. And I think Karox, more than a lot of other filmmakers, uses dream logic in that particular way. His films are definitely surreal. They're definitely out there. They're definitely freewheeling and imaginative. But it's never just surreality for its own sake. And that's one of the things that is exciting about his films. And it's one of the few things that I think links all of them with the exception of his first movie that was basically him attempting to rip off the French New Wave. You, you Part of what you said you really liked about the movie so much was yeah. Henry, what was, I mean, you already talked about like why Henry worked for you and helped make the movie work to the extent that it did. Uh, one of the things I, I kind of saw, I saw as I was reading about it and I, 
I didn't really have any much reasoning to push back against the point was that some people thought they maybe could have developed Anne as a character a little bit more. We see her a lot from a distance when she's singing and she's not really part of any of the moments where it's just dialogue and it's not being sung through. And I, I mean, I think it's impressive that, like you said, Henry's the character he is with, without us getting any more from her. But do you think there's space in this movie where, you know, you get to know her a little bit more in the way we're knowing Henry, even if it's not her story ultimately? It's hard because the challenge of a film like this is it is very much part of what I would call cinema of externalization, um, where the way we are perceiving the world is filtered through something about the primary character's internal life. And it's funny because I think part of the issue with depicting Anne uh, in a little more depth comes back to something very similar to. a similar problem with depicting the female main character in Burning, um, another movie we've talked about on the podcast before, Hmm. where in both films, part of why those like lead female characters are as thin um, as they are is because of the male leads inability to really perceive them in the depth of who they are. And something about that being filtered through the way we perceive those characters and every character in the film. Um, in in Annette, Anne is a somewhat thin, idealized, and not extremely well fleshed out character, in large part because Henry has, who has received so far inside of himself, isn't quite able to see her. I do think it may be possible to rework the film to give her a little more of a showcase and I'm certainly never opposed to giving Marianne Cotillard more of a showcase, (laughs) but I do think there is something about Anne as more of an ideal that worked with the film. No, that makes sense based on how we were talking about it earlier and that it's largely about his inability to um, actually, you know, see his family and accept them and uh be a part of it for in in the way that uh in in the way that he should and uh and i and i and i guess that makes sense and 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 that that and as we already said that is largely what this film's about and it's kind of funny like in burning and i i totally get it there and i don't i don't remember if we actually like uh i don't think i criticize i don't think we criticize burning for that either because you know so much of that movie was about like that main character being like so in his head about what was going on with her and the Stephen Yin character and him dealing with his own insecurities about his own status in life when he's like looking at what that guy has going on and he's kind of getting in his own head about it everything there to such a great extent so I, well, I, I explicitly I, in in the case of burning um where I think we both kind of settled on it was the that main character was in love with the idea of the girl right. and wasn't able to actually perceive her as a real person Totally. And and it's but it's funny, like they they were actually like, you know, a a lot of that movie, they are he's he's around her a lot. But at at a certain point in that movie, they're they're a little more separated. And she is like spending time with the Stephen Young character here. Uh, Henry can't even really see her for who she really is. And he's like already in a marriage with her. Um, So unfortunately, that is true about people about people in relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And there is something about him and the way he views his relationship with Anne as attempting to fix something about himself. And that again, connects the idea that even people we're close to, even people we have like real quote unquote, real relationships with 
it's not impossible for those relationships to be based around people attempting to kind of narcissistically use someone in a utilitarian purpose. And again, it's like we want to think that we understand and fully we, we fully understand the people we're close to. And for many people that, you know, that is the case, but it's not true for everyone, um, especially people who are carrying around. Again, these burdens of self-loathing and have receded so far inside of themselves. So what, what, do, you, what do you make of the conductor character then? Because that's another guy that he he Henry definitely uses. And are we are, 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 do you think we're supposed to take from it that like, hey, if this guy if this guy was just a more well-adjusted person, he might have, this conductor guy like who? Yeah. It, whatever his relationship was with Anna side, like, hey, that's an example of someone that could like, be a much more uh, a better, stronger, healthier relationship in his life than the way he ultimately uses him. Or did you take something else from that character? I don't I mean, I don't think we ever really see any basis for a real or healthy relationship between those two characters it is solely sure. based around transactional i think on both both the side of on, on for both characters there is something they're using each other for mm-hmm. i mean even the conductor character he's basically using uh henry as a way to kind of feel kind of feel that closeness to Anne, and by proxy of her and potentially his daughter um, after her death. And I do find it interesting that the movie never actually confirms that the conductor is Annette's daughter, is an, is Annette, Annette's father. Um, it's implied, but I also kind of liked the fact that the threat of it was enough. The, the actual reality didn't matter. The, the, the threat of this other man kind of having been kind of having muddied the waters and having really been the one who has created this thing that Henry creating this child who Henry has been using to fill kind of the, the void in his own soul. That at the end of it, she wasn't even his, like just the threat of that is enough. Yeah, I agree. I guess. Yeah. Even if it's not some other alternative like version, that's all that apparent where they could have a relationship. It is, it is interesting that like, it's just, cause there's not that many other, there's just not that many characters in this movie. So, mm-hmm. Uh, just it's the fact that like oh here's some other guy that's like in Henry's life to some extent and like the only the you know he, he I I was struck by even just the way he talked to him like there's a moment where he's like watching that I'm gonna go blow off some steam or like ev- like every interaction that this guy like has with someone else it's like there is I I don't know if it I don't know if it, not an ulterior motive but like I mean. It's it, it's not to like it's not to connect like with just like a regular human conversation like he, it's all like you know what can what can I get out of this heck I I, I mean I I'd, I'd even argue that like that that goes for the final scene too which we'll talk about but I mean yeah. uh it's it, it's I I don't think he's like it's totally on the level like oh I just want to I want to genuinely reconnect with my daughter in that last scene it's more like I I, I want to do something to like put my to give to give me some peace you know and it this the Simon Helberg guy the conductor he's 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 just someone else that's there to for him to get something out of it yeah and it's it's funny i i think of henry as a character i believe he like he believes that he wants to be a better person and on some level he does but i think he's ultimately someone who is too far gone too like and and just for some people it's hard to kind of come back and we want to have this we have this idea that like 
it's never too late for anyone and you just have the, the, the epiphany that you totally change as a person. But I think kind of getting to what you're saying about the end, even if he is someone who wants to change, who recognizes the harm he has done and kind of where that harm comes from, he is someone who has kind of fully become who he is. And what do you mean? Sorry, what were we going to say? No, I was just going to say, in light of that, what do you make of the, the creeping mark on his face? Um, I viewed it as kind of a Dorian Gray touch. Hmm. Of something monstrous in him that we're slowly seeing revealed on the surface. And from what I remember, it was him... It's It's been a few weeks since I saw the movie. Um, but that was him, like, scratching himself, right? Oh, see, I, I didn't even really... Maybe? I. It, it's just kind of like, it starts off small, and then, like, yeah. you, you could almost miss it. And I think I missed it the first time, because I went back and I watched most of the movie again today. And I, after I'd already kind of heard it talked about on another podcast, that it was like, oh, like, that thing is just, like, getting bigger throughout the movie. And that actually was the case. And I only noticed it for the first time in the prison. I was like, are we supposed to think he got in some kind of prison fight? And I was like, oh, no, that's not what it is. It's something else that's, like, just manifesting itself on the surface throughout the movie in much more noticeable way. So I, I I just I didn't take the time to go do to do a deep dive on that myself. I I only first like fully kind of took it in on my viewing of the movie today. So yeah, I mean from what I remember, I mean whether it was causal or not, but I think we saw the scenes of him like scratching that area and okay. that kind of. So my impression from what I remember was that it was a scar left by him scratching, and kind of as he scratched it himself more and more, the scar got bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. Were you so? I, I, and I'm sure you can kind of compartmentalize this stuff, but I, I, I couldn't really help but kind of think about as I was watching it, uh, especially as ha- since we, it's been less than two months or shoot. No, this year's gone by freaking fast. It's been more than two months since we saw the Sparks Brothers. Uh, but like since I was kind of recent in my head and then the, the Ron and Russell show up in that opening scene and they show up again in, the, in a little cameo later in the movie in a plane. I, I just I found I found myself thinking about that they were the ones that like wanted to tell this story and I've read a little bit that they've been trying to get this made for a while. Are, are, is that something you're even thinking about as you're watching something like this or reflecting on it after the fact? Like, hey, are, were these guys trying to like excise some demons or like what is going through their head? Like, did did you think about what they were trying to say, if anything? So I'd say most of what I was thinking of with kind of the Sparks Brothers in the context of the movie uh, was more in terms of style than anything else. Like I was truthfully, I was thinking more of Karak's just because like Karak's means more to me than Sparks do. Yeah. And it's it's, and even I can tell it's distinctively a uh, Karak's movie. So I, I can see that. But it's kind of funny that he happened to work with these guys. Yeah. But I'd say kind of the element of of sparks the band that really kind of came through in the movie for me was less something specific about kind of demons they want to excise and more just kind of this very operatic and baroque style that i think pervades a lot of their music like just in terms of affect everything they do on some level is larger than life love love it or hate it but there is something very exclamatory and large and in your face about what they do that can at times be just strangely presentational. Yeah, it's funny. So like like you said, we we, we saw uh, the the Sparks documentary together, mm-hmm. and I like I like I told you then I'm somewhat familiar with some of their stuff. I'm not gonna say that like I've listened to every Sparks album. They're not in my pantheon of like my favorite bands of all time. But I respect the fact that they've always been so 
unreservedly themselves. Yeah. And I guess what you can say, again, trying to kind of find the, the element of them in this, is Henry, as a character, is someone who is unreservedly himself. And that's the problem. And <laughs> it, I think there is some exploration for better or worse. There are some people, if in bringing out who they really are, there is some darkness in them. And whether it is good or bad or healthy or not, the idea that, you know, if you bring people, I guess that in some level, when you reveal who people really are, you don't always get something pretty. That makes sense to me. Like, I, I don't even think I got that far with it. I, it was just a thought I was pondering, you know, after I watched I'm, it. I'm trying movie. to kind of work, like, work, like think as I work here. Yeah, no, I, I don't, you don't need to feel the need to, like, uh, you know, just make something up just to answer my question. Because uh, that's just where my, that's where, that's where my mind happened to wonder. This is someone that was curious about these guys, yeah. knowing basically nothing about them before we saw the documentary. But the, what, the one takeaway I told you after we saw it was that, like, man, I think these guys are inspiring that like, you know, uh, that and it's, it's, and that it was cool that like people kept seeing something in them and that like, they just liked their vision, even if it wasn't like super commercially successful, which I think is like very, very uncommon in like, whether it be music or, uh, TV or movies, you know, like you're only going to get so many shots if you're like, you're, you're not making a ton of money. And then people kept wanting to like support them, even if like they, they, they were going to be single-minded in being themselves even if it was going away from a sound that had been more popular or something like that. And I, I thought, I thought that was like really inspiring. So I was just like, you know, this thing is so weird. And a lot of that is probably because of the director they ended up working with, but still it's like a, it's a lot of the weirdness could probably be attributed to them too. And I'm like, and, and as I read a little bit more about it and I saw like, they tried to get it made for a while and I'm like, well, maybe they tried to get it made for a while, not only because they're not like huge names necessarily, but also because it's a weird ass thing that's, uh you're gonna have to find the right person to like buy into it and i was like it's cool that like it's clear that like they were probably similarly uncompromising in like trying to get this movie made in a specific way whereas like who knows maybe a different version of it gets made a long time ago or something like that so i kind of had that a bigger picture outside of the movie thought even if like i wanted to think about for a while like man like how how did this come out of these like happy looking dudes minds <laughs> yeah i mean I'll, I'll say like i as much as i feel like a lot of this was coming from Karak's. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like, if nothing else, the Sparks Brothers were probably at least pretty cool with where he was going with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they probably weren't they were they weren't going to work with him if they weren't like comfortable with it. I think. Yeah. And I think Karak is also someone who, like I said, as dreamlike as he is, as wondrous and strange and like very dream logic focused as he is, he is someone who has always been willing to take that dream logic to darker and sadder places. You know, I, I think my favorite of his is probably Lovers on the Bridge, but I think probably the movie his, of his that I think about the most is Pola X, which, you know, is generally characterized by people who know him as the incest movie. Oh. But it, it's a Melville adaptation. But it is as beautiful as it is disturbing, as bleak as it is kind of wondrous and it it kind of has all of these different colors of everything um at the same while at the same time being this very dreamlike very kind of 
French mysterious film in, in a way that I, in a way that I think is very much in the tradition of kind of French surrealism. Like it has a lot more in common with again the tradition of Jean Cocteau, the tradition of of Alfred Jury, than than it does a lot of kind of what we think of as kind of Western Western surrealism. And I think that Carox has historically been able to have kind of that dream logic element, but at the same time go to these very kind of dark and strange, uncomfortable places without kind of the two ever really feeling at odds is one of the things that makes him the very kind of special filmmaker that he is. What I want to do now is I want to, I mean, I somehow I think we made it pretty over 30 minutes without really spoiling anything all that important necessarily. So I want to jump off for a second and then talk about the ending and then I'll circle back and let you tie up any other odds and ends and things you wanted to touch on. So if someone somehow made it this far that hadn't watched this movie, as you can tell, uh, Ben really liked it. And, uh, you know, I'm probably still processing how I feel about it, but I think it's really interesting and definitely worth checking out. So you can go do that and then. Uh, come come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. But Ben, this is funny. It's the second straight movie that we've talked about where it's like, you know, I might not have known a lot about some of the underlying subject matter, but I was like blown away by the last 15 minutes of it. Sure. <laughs> and I mean, I, I would say I followed the story of Green Knight and was a little more locked in than I was for parts of Annette. But I, similarly, at the when it gets to this final scene at the prison, I was like, Holy shit! It's like kind of it's kind of like blowing me off my blowing me out of my shoes a little bit here. What, what did you think all of a sudden when like all of a sudden Annette actually becomes like more of a personality than uh, she had been to that point? I thought it was very much the right note to end the movie on, and I think just to rewind a little bit. Yeah, I found the fact that he even had his daughter give that final performance after on some level he realized she probably saw him kill the the accompanist um very interesting and on some level to me that reflected some desire for some even kind of subconscious or unconscious desire to be caught and even if there was a recognition on his part that it was too late for him to become someone he isn't it kind of felt like maybe the only way for his daughter to be free and for him to maybe face the punishment for his actions that on some level he knew he deserved. Um, Because like I said, I don't think Henry was someone who was ignorant of his own character, ignorant of his own flaws. In, In some ways he was too aware of them. Yeah, he doesn't when 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 she says at this Super Bowl type event she's supposed to be performing at like uh, my daddy killed people or whatever like yeah. that. He doesn't seem like totally like, oh, shit, I need to make a run for it. <laughs> he doesn't no, have that kind he, of look. And, on his and face, he, you know? he puts her in the position to say that. Mm-hmm. So to me and again, I'm not going to get too literal about this is what this is because it's Karak's and that's not how Karak's works. But it did kind of reflect this kind of almost unconscious desire to be caught and to kind of be end up in the place where he feels like he belongs. Because one of the strange and kind of sad things about the ending is as much as it's kind of this obviously sad ending for like Henry as a character rotting in prison, his daughter having moved past them and kind of finally becoming her own person only when she is free of him. There was this feeling I had that it almost felt like to him, he has put himself in the place where he belongs where he feels like he belongs. And 
that's why kind of that final moment between him and his daughter was kind of simultaneously tragic and beautiful at the same time. I mean, first off, it's the one moment where I guess he finally sees her as a person because it is the moment where she is about to walk out of his basically walk out of his life. And so in this one moment, this final goodbye, he sees her as the person who she is and who she can finally be outside of his shadow. So it, it takes her getting to a point where she's going to make like a decision like that in front of him, whereas like her whole life up until that point, he controlled her. And yeah. I mean, the one time where he finally sees her or something like that, she's about to like, you know, do something where it's like he can no longer use her the way we've been talking about that he's yeah. used her his whole life. The other thing, and this is something that I kind of didn't even remember up until this moment, is the fact that Annette doesn't solely kind of it, it's not just her father who she blames. It's, right. It's her mother, too. And this kind of does reflect the kind of something I mentioned at the beginning. And this this is kind of the one thing where I think maybe we could have seen more of Anne as a character. Annette wasn't just Henry's attempt to kind of fix the relationship. It was both Henry and Anne's. They're kind of the whole thing of having a child was on some level to fix something in their relationship. Maybe, you know, if 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 we have a kid, this this marriage will be healed and there is something about how both of them were using Annette. Um, and we didn't really get it, Anne didn't really get as much of a chance to use her in as dramatic of a way. But I think from Annette's perspective, being free of Henry is being free of the expectations of both of her parents. It is the attempt to finally just be herself rather than the the, the child who was meant to heal her father and kind of this idealized shard of perfection of her mother yeah i don't know if i'm reading too much into henry or not i i I couldn't resist i usually like as like a principal i don't click on these internet articles that are like the ending of blank explained like i usually just don't want i I don't feel the need to do that but i I clicked on the vulture one for this and i and i i kind of i can't gave into my curiosity about it and it picked up on the same exact thing that you did where where she's like blaming her mom too and it kind of notes that, like, she, she specifically says the, the, the lyric was extract the poison from one's heart. I can't be sure. Forgive the two of you or not. Uh, and Henry tries to, like, actually stick up for Anne there. Yeah. And like uh, it tells her, like, no, don't blame your mother. It's all me. Like, I it was me going towards this darkness that resulted in all this. Don't don't blame her. And I'm wondering if at that point it's like he, he's trying to, like do all this as a way of unburdening himself. Like maybe it's not as selfless as it's coming across, but he's trying to like do anything in that moment to like make him feel better about himself, including like, you know, sticking up for an Anne in a way he never would have when she was alive. Well, on some level, he's a narcissist. Yeah. And there is something narcissistic about kind of letting yourself be. So the word that I'd use in this case is omnipotent. Um, there is something omnipotent in saying, like, all of the poison comes from me. All of the negativity comes from me. I am the cause of all wrongs. There is something about that that takes agency away from other people. Mm-hmm. And whatever else you want to call Henry, he was on a very, in a very real way a narcissist. And I guess it's, it's not to say that, you know, if we're going to play the, like, who was the real villain game, it's like, obviously, like, Anne did not make murder. Henry murder her. What, whether you want to call it a murder or an accident, whatever you want to call her death. Because it was, it, it's, it's strange because it's very obviously like 
It's a, it's a, it's at the very least manslaughter. And yeah, the, yeah. The, the um, thing was straight up murder. He, he, he's the bad yeah. guy. But I'm, I'm, the, the thing that was striking me is there's a difference between kind of the Anne's death and the condu- and the conductor's death. And sure. I was trying to figure out if there was a better way to kind of characterize that. I mean, obviously, it was at the very least something that Henry could have prevented. <laughs> but I, I, it wasn't I, 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 I got a, I got a kick out of how he kept making the point that people like I couldn't leave the baby on the boat, so I couldn't save her. Yeah. And for, for a second, I was like, yeah, well, who's driving the boat? You know, maybe she wouldn't have been alone. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, don't want to go down the route of defending Henry McHenry's actions. But, I mean, look, the probably the the darker parts of the internet in, in universe and Annette would do that for me. Sure. Look, if there are people defending Bill Cosby, there were probably people in universe defending Henry. Oh, for sure. Some people think he probably thought he was... We didn't even really talk about the Me Too thing, but, like, um, yeah. like there's probably some people that would have just been, you know, out there saying he was being unfairly canceled and cancel culture is the real problem, not Henry. There, there would have been plenty of that if this was a real story. Well, so that was that actually there was that sequence earlier in the film. We kind of saw like the chorus of, of accusers. Yeah. We never actually saw any follow up on that in universe, did we? No, like I saw some people speculating that maybe that was just like a dream that Anne was having. That, that was kind of my impression of it, that it mm-hmm. seemed like it seemed to me. And like, again, I'm not going to say this was what it was, because, again, that's like really not the best way to approach the film as a whole. But in the moment, it struck me as more of it did strike me as a dream. And it struck me as kind of more Anne's again, vision of kind of the darker impulses she saw within her husband or the darker elements of her husband kind of brought to the surface. But it does coincide with, like, his career, like, kind of, you know, slowing up a bit. So there's no, like, direct, there's no direct reference to it. And But like you already said before, there's also a chance that people just got tired of his shtick. Yeah, and that's the thing. Again, there's, there's no, like, real, like, answer of what it was, and I don't think it, I don't think it really does anything to kind of dive into like, was this like a thing that really happened in universe or not? Because the emotional reality of what it meant to Anne in that moment is more important than any, like than anything else within the context of the film. But yeah, that, that was interesting. And I, I did find it just very notable that it wasn't something that was followed up on again. But yeah, I don't know. I, one of the, I mean, again, just one of the things that is hard about literally interpreting a Karax film is so much of it does follow this kind of particular, very slippery dream logic that at a certain point you just have to accept the affect of it rather than attempting to kind of literally plot out what happens from one, like one scene to the next. And that's not a bad thing at all because that's just the way his films operate. But yeah, I think you just kind of have to as much as Annette is a film that you can read into and discuss and contemplate and think about. And I'll say for me, it's a, it's a movie that I liked more the more I thought about it. It is a film that on some level you have to let wash over you. Oh yeah, definitely. At a certain point, I, like I, and I, I kind of accepted that after watching Holy Motors, I was like, look, I, yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't need to like try and interpret every single bit of this as I'm watching it. And if I felt a little bit better about it after I started watching, reading some other critics, I'm like, Oh, well, a lot of the fairly well-respected critics out there are like not even really trying to like give you a, a beat by beat breakdown of what this means, what that means, what this is, what that is. You got to just kind of like be there for the experience of it. Ben, are there any other parts of this movie that we didn't touch on yet that you want to talk about? No, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn this into another two and a half hour podcast. 
No, um, I'm, I'm in Eastern time and it's uh, 11:15, so I was not going to let you. But I want to, I want to make sure I don't leave any big, yeah, any, yeah. any good meat on the bone for you. But no, I, w- I would say, again, formally speaking, I really love the movie. I, I loved so many of kind of the more surreal and kind of obviously constructed touches. Whether it was the the rare projection, whether it was kind of the 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 faux TMZ and like newspaper articles come to life, whether it was kind of the very obviously fake uh, kind of opera touch of characters almost kind of explaining everything they're doing in song. I like, I I thought the movie was, and and I I want to like, I I mean this in a very specific way. Spectacular. Karox is someone who is very aware of the potential for film to be a spectacle and for that to not necessarily be the same thing as making something that is hollow or empty. And that's something I definitely felt about Annette as I felt about many of his other films. But I really appreciated the fact that it was willing to be as bold and colorful and visually inventive as as it was. But yeah, I mean, other than that, it really is just a movie that I could see... I can see people having any number of responses to it. Um, I know some people I respect and admire a lot absolutely loved it. I know some people I respect and admire a lot who absolutely hated it. I don't think either reaction is unfair. I do yeah. think that the one reaction that is unfair it would be critiquing it as a shallow or flat or empty. Because I do think there is more to it than an, an initial reading may reveal. Yeah, you know, I went into, I, or I left it thinking, like, you know, and I think part, part of it, uh, this is not a reflection of the movie, but I actually fell asleep for, like, probably, like, the 15 to 20 minutes. This is, like, I watched it last Saturday, and for some reason, like, I, I think I just didn't get a lot of sleep on Friday night, because I, I'd, like, been at a, I went to, like, a 9 o'clock showing of, like, uh, Reminiscence, not necessarily the best use of my time, but I had, I had a podcast to do uh, with Fred, which uh, people will probably have already heard by the time this comes out. But like, I saw that at, like nine o'clock and drank like a big ass Coke Icy, and like I, I that kept me awake till like three in the morning. So I was just like sluggish on Saturday. I sat on my couch and I just fell asleep. I think from like the moment that uh, the first moment Baby Annette sings until like he walks back in and uh, uh, she hears her and hears the conductor has, ta- has taught her that song. And I, so I, like, I missed like a fairly important chunk there that made it seem like even more disjointed and weird. And so I left it like thinking it was weirder than it actually was. And I think I connected with it a little bit more when I rewatched today. And but like my, my take after I initially watched it was like, oh, this is like very clearly not for me, but I don't think it's bad. But I could see it being for some other people. And I think even though like maybe it's not my favorite kind of movie necessarily, there's just like a lot to get out of it anyway. And I, but you can't blame someone that if, if, if it is one that's just not for them. Like, yeah, it, it's perfectly fine. Speaking of Simon Helberg, actually, the, the yeah. kind of the one thing I did want to highlight, because we spent a lot of movie talking about a lot of the podcast talking about Karox and talking about kind of just the broad strokes of the movie itself. I do want to highlight the performances. First off, shout out to my high school alumni, Simon Helberg. Oh, yeah, it's one one of the uh, the the stranger and more interesting uh, roles he's taken in in uh, the post Big Bang Theory world. So oh, always happy to see it. But yeah, I mean Marianne Cotillard, even if she didn't have a ton to do, I I thought she kind of made the most of Anne as a very ideal character with something puzzling and introspective lurking beneath. She can also she is a much better singer than. Uh, 
Adam Driver, which I, I think, like, it's just sad but true. Mm-hmm. But the performance I really do want to highlight is Adam Driver, who makes the absolute most out of the darkness and utter physicality of the role um, in a way that I really... I, I was blown away by. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of I've, I've been a big fan of Driver ever since Patterson, which is still one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. But I respect the fact that he's kind of one of the more unusual big stars we have, in that he's someone who he's going to kind of appear in these almost he has like these like A-list kind of sex symbol roles, but he's always he feels kind of ill at ease in them and kind of darker and stranger and more inscrutable and this well, it's funny he's, this, he's, fall, he's following this up with two ridley scott movies in the in, yeah. in the span of three months <laughs> and and i don't know this one it just kind of let him fully dive into kind of those darker and more uncomfortable places and i thought he did that beautifully and i thought that so much of the humanity of the character came from what he mined out of what could have very easily been something thinner yeah, I really respect how prolific he's been like the last like five years in really trying like lots of different stuff for sure. I, I'll say like the, I, I I mad respect for the girl that played Annette in the final scene. Yeah. Like I, I don't I mean, you know, it's not the same maybe as having like a kid actor that's like just having to um, deliver dialogue as opposed to seeing like any kid that's good at singing. Well, you know, I don't know. I think it's easier. For, it's If a kid can sing, a kid can sing. But if, it, you know, I think it's probably easier to like have a noticeable bad kid actor probably than it is a singer. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. But like, I, I, I don't know. But like, I just, there's like, wow, she really held the screen with him. And like you said, Adam Driver's maybe not like, you know, a, uh, a uh, on the level of singers, maybe other actors out there, but like still that she held the screen and was like really, really uh, made that seem pretty riveting in its own right. But yeah, uh, I think, again, I think we both recommend people check it out. It's, it's easily accessible on Amazon prime. And uh, I, I will say, if you do have the opportunity to see it in theaters, I highly recommend you do that. It, it's a movie that it, there is something special about seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're in L.A., like based like Ben, or you're in New York, you should be able to find somewhere that does it. I don't know how widely available it is in other places. It didn't really seem like it was anywhere in South Florida yet. So um, who knows, maybe. But yeah, I, I, I totally second that. If you have the chance to go in a theater, go support your theater, 100%. Ben, anything else you want to plug that you've been watching lately or, any, or anything at all? Um, you know, it's funny. It's not something I saw like super recently, but just because I haven't had a chance to talk about it and I've been thinking about it a lot. Mm-hmm. The best movie I saw during the pandemic, old or new. You, you, you watch movies during the pandemic? A few. <laughs> when I could, when I could like stomach watching a movie on my laptop. Um, the best one I saw in the movie that I think has stayed with me the most is a movie called Distant Voices Still Lives, which it it, it was the first movie from Terrence Davies, who I think is one of the greatest living filmmakers, and it's it's very hard to explain and it's a very inscrutable and strange and very specific and it's a movie that is very specifically what it is but it is basically a two-part uh movie about uh, a working class family in post-world war ii liverpool uh the death of the father of the family and the children kind of moving on with their lives and kind of building families of their own and it's a movie that kind of leapfrogs over time. It'll start at one moment, then go 20 years in the past. 
then mid-scene jump uh, five years past the point where the movie started and then back and forth. It, it basically, it goes from moment to moment um, in a way that, if I were to describe, it echoes the musical flow of memory. But it's a very special movie, and it's one that does a very good job of giving you all of the, like, hidden textures of the world that, like, we aren't necessarily able to see just looking at a thing. We're too inside of it to really see something for what it is. Um, It's a movie that elevates all of that to the surface in a way that is beautiful and that I kind of describe as almost like a God's eye view of the world. As Ben described it, he had to stomach watching a movie not on a big screen. So you know if you liked the movie that much that he didn't watch on a big screen, it must be a pretty good movie. Yeah, so. it, 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 I, I will say um, it is a movie that for people who have undergone certain types of family loss will maybe hit home a little bit more. Um, specific, I, honestly, any, for anyone who has lost a parent, I think it is a movie that is going to hit you particularly hard but in a way that, to me at least, felt cathartic. Felt cathartic. Gotcha. I was listening the other day uh, to uh, Tom McCarthy on Mark Maron's podcast, and he, he brought up just how much that he really enjoyed watching uh, Lynn Shelton's last movie, Sword of Trust, that starred Mark Maron. And I, I think I'd gone to try and watch it last year, and it was like on Showtime, like right around the time that like – I stopped having Showtime and I just like let it pass by. But I saw it was on Netflix right after I'd heard them talking about it. So I, I went and watched it and I I actually it made me want to go back and watch more Lynn Shelton movies because I I felt bad because I had actually never watched one that she had written. I'd only watched Laggies and obviously seen a lot of her uh, a lot of her TV work because she she's if you're listening to this, you've watched something that Lynn Shelton directed on TV probably. And I, I and I think a couple of other well, actually sort of trust got really good reviews, but I think the the story is like uh, kind of slight, but like it's still a fun hang. And she gets like an incredible performance out of Mark Maron, who like one hundred percent. What what? Oh, so you've seen you, you watched sort of trust? I saw it in theaters. Oh, okay, that's cool. So I I I just thought it was cool because like you know I I've, I've heard him say, him say on his podcast a couple times that like he's um. He's taken a couple roles that haven't come out yet that are like forcing him like out of the comfort zone where he was maybe playing different versions of Mark Maron. And maybe you could say that about the character of Sword and Trust, but there's like two scenes in particular in Sword of Trust where he gets to like, you know, I think show a different side of himself than he ever did like on Glow. And I really like Glow and uh, or even some of the other stuff he's done where it was just like and, and like they obviously uh, were the, the last year and change of uh, Lynn Shelton's life. They were in a relationship and she had directed him several times before that so they had a really strong working relationship and i and it was just really cool because you could like see that like oh wow like she really got like some really cool moments out of him and i was like if nothing else like that movie is worth it just to like watch mark maron and uh and but i but i also like wow she can get that out of mark maron i need to go back and watch the other movies where she's like worked with more like professionally trained actors so uh, and like there's still some like cool stuff in this story and i think short of trust has some interesting stuff to say about like you know, uh, media and how he can and how information is shared today. Uh, but yeah, watch it for Mark Maron. Sounds like you agree, though. Yeah, no, I, I liked it a lot. Actually, so one last thing I want to plug. Um, yeah. I'm not sure when the podcast is coming out, but I'm hoping this will still be timely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if anyone listening to this lives in California, uh, please vote in the recall election on September 14th. Um. However, like I, I'm not going to say I'm the biggest fan of Gavin Newsom in the world, 
<laughs> but it is way too important to vote no in this election, uh, keep him in office right now. It means way too much both for the state and the country as a whole. Um, so even if you're ambivalent about him, please, this is not an election that you can sit out. So if you live in California, please vote in the recall election. Please vote no. Yeah, I second that. And that like, I even though I'm like, I'm, a, I'm in Florida, like California is such like, a big economy that like, it's going to like be felt in other places if like, if, if like a Republican that has like the kind of views that it sounds like Larry Elder has is running that state. Like, it'll have we also effect, have a yeah. senator from maybe leaving office soon, so. Right. So, and yeah, a governor can appoint a senator and they have a senator that is like around close to 90 years old. So uh, you don't you don't want to play games there, California. And uh, to answer your question, uh, I think as of now, it looks like this would be scheduled to come out on like September 9th. So the week right before that happens. So uh, yeah, uh, just for again, for anyone who is listening, the election is on uh, September 14th. If you hopefully received a mail in ballot um Either vote that way or vote in person on election day, but please, please, please vote in this election. Yes, and vote no, correct? And vote no. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, thanks as always for joining us. I think Ben will Ben has already put in requests to join for a couple movies later this fall that I don't know if they have solid release dates, including Bergman Island and After Yang, and who knows, maybe something else will pop up because I don't think After Yang has a release date, and Bergman Island is probably only going to be in LA as of the middle of October, so I doubt I see it till November. So maybe Ben will be back before then, but he'll be back for at least two more things that are within technically 2021 releases. So uh, thanks again to Ben for joining. I really appreciated our talk, and it helped me appreciate Annette even more. Thanks to everyone for listening. As usual, you can find the podcast on uh, Twitter at the Rewind Movie Pod and on at Gmail, the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. So send feedback that way. As usual, Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, coming up next, I will probably be putting out a podcast on, I don't know, I, I don't know what order everything's coming in. We might have something on uh, Saint-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, something on Candyman. I don't really know yet. Like we're just about to be an avalanche of movies hitting us. So I'm really excited about that, but I haven't really figured out my release schedule, but rest assured we'll be back next week, maybe even with two movies because there's just a lot of movies right now. So again, thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.